You took your job to help people, to make a positive difference in the world. But what if you discovered that your teammates on this same mission were in fact hurting people? Not only that, but they were enabling a whole network of violent crimes against innocent victims. And worst of all, the powerful organization you worked for was covering up for them. Would you speak up and fight back, knowing the risks? Or would you get out and try to move on with your life? Welcome to Whistleblowers, a Spotify original from Parcast. In this series, we explore the biggest lies in history through the eyes of the whistleblowers who risked everything to expose them. This will be the final episode of Whistleblowers. We'd like to thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed these fascinating stories as much as we have. To wrap up the series, we're telling the story of Catherine Bolkovac, an American police officer who was sent to Bosnia as part of the UN's post-war peacekeeping mission in the late 1990s, when she discovered an extensive sex trafficking network involving many of her fellow UN monitors She put her career on the line to reveal the truth and save lives. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona. Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Egglands Best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. In June 1999, 38-year-old American police officer Catherine Bolkovac arrived in the Bosnian capital, Sarajevo. Her goal was to help bring peace and the rule of law to the war-torn country. She also happened to be looking for a fresh start. Born and raised on a farm in Nebraska, Kathy had spent most of her life in the area where she'd grown up. Despite a full scholarship, she had dropped out of college after less than a semester to marry her high school sweetheart. A decade and three kids later, at the age of 28, she found herself in an ugly divorce and custody battle. When she got an interview at the Lincoln Police Department, it was a lifeline. She wanted to help her community, 
and do something meaningful and interesting. Joining the police seemed like just the ticket. She thrived in the Lincoln PD. Her boss was tough and straightforward. The department expected the best from officers. Working for the police was a service job and demanded care, intelligence, and dedication. In exchange, the department provided mentorship and camaraderie. Over the next decade, Kathy worked hard and excelled. She chose to specialize in domestic abuse and child sex crimes and doggedly pursued abusers and predators. It was tough and emotionally taxing, but Kathy liked knowing she was helping innocent people. After nine years, though, she started to feel like she needed a change. She was nearing 40. Her two oldest kids were both in college, and her youngest daughter was almost halfway through high school. Her police officer's salary was already stretched by two college tuitions. As much as she loved her work, it might be time for something else. As she mulled her next move, Kathy saw a flyer at work. The U.S. State Department was recruiting police officers to join the United Nations International Police Task Force, or IPTF, in Bosnia and Herzegovina. The IPTF was helping monitor and train Bosnian police as the country rebuilt. For several years in the 1990s, following the breakup of the former Yugoslavia, Bosnia had been embroiled in a brutal war. It had pitted the country's three major ethnic groups against one another and resulted in the devastating genocide of Bosniaks. Sarajevo, the capital, had been under siege for nearly four years. The longest siege in modern warfare. Like most Americans, Kathy had watched news coverage of the war from afar, horrified. Reading the flyer, she saw a chance to help people. She also saw the salary on offer, $85,000 for one year's mission, tax-free. That was tens of thousands of dollars more than she made and would help dramatically with putting her kids through college. As hard as it would be to leave her youngest daughter for a year and as much as her boss wanted her to stay, the opportunity felt like a no-brainer. Kathy breezed through the application process. The contractor hiring for the IPTF in the United States was a corporation called DynCorp. It had more than a billion dollars in contracts from the U.S. government. It did not, however, have rigorous hiring processes. And Kathy was asked for neither a background check or an interview, which explained her new colleagues, whom she met at DynCorp training in June 1999. Kathy had expected to be working with the best of the best, experienced, sober officers ready for a grueling mission in a recent war zone. Instead, the others were mostly either retirement age or inexperienced new recruits. They were primarily interested in the big paycheck and didn't know anything about the situation they were headed into. One of them did, though. One evening, over beers at the pool, a middle-aged man from Mississippi told the others that he'd already been over to Bosnia for the IPTF once before, and he knew where to get really nice 
12 to 15-year-olds. Kathy thought she must have misheard him. At least, she hoped she had. Her misgivings about DynCorp only grew as her contingent headed to Sarajevo at the end of the month. Between travel fiascos, last-minute contract changes, lack of training, and the caliber of officers, it was clear that the company was cutting corners. The corporation's goal seemed to be to do the bare minimum and pocket as much of the U.S. taxpayers' money as possible. Fortunately, things started to look up when she arrived in Bosnia. As part of the UN peacekeeping mission, the IPTF consisted of police officers from dozens of countries. Most came from the national police forces, or even their country's military, which meant that they were still accountable to that authority. And most genuinely wanted to train and rebuild Bosnia's police force and institute community-based policing. Kathy immediately threw herself into the job. Based on her experience investigating sexual assault, she applied to become a human rights investigator and was immediately accepted. She was assigned to an IPTF station in a Sarajevo suburb, from which she would report to the UN Office of the High Commissioner on Human Rights. There, Kathy immediately hit it off with the station's senior human rights investigator, an experienced Swedish detective named Bo Andreasen. The two were excited to dig in when they landed their first big case. A local restaurant owner had been beaten up by a group of masked police officers. The man claimed that they had done so at the behest of the Minister of the Interior and his nephew, who led a special police division. He claimed to have been involved in the minister's cigarette smuggling operation. When he had spoken out about the operation, the minister's nephew had sent the police to intimidate him into shutting up. Kathy and Bo investigated and found plenty of evidence to back up the man's story. It didn't look like he was the only person it had happened to, either. This was a major corruption issue that the UN was going to need to handle. Kathy and Bo took their findings up the line, but their local IPTF superiors both American DynCorp employees, insisted that they drop the investigation. The case wasn't a big deal, they said. Better to just look the other way. But Kathy and Bo had heard the officials brag about being friends with the Minister of the Interior. Were these IPTF monitors letting their personal relationships get in the way of their job? Or was it something more sinister? Bo took matters into his own hands. In order to be able to keep investigating, he got a transfer to the UN's Regional Human Rights Office and took the case with him. Furious at losing the case, the IPTF officials demoted Kathy and reassigned her to a station without a human rights office. Her promising new career looked like it might be over before it had really gotten started. Fortunately, Bo was looking out for her. He told the head of the UN Office of the High Commissioner on Human Rights what was going on. This woman, a British lawyer named Madeline Reese, immediately understood the situation. She'd encountered men like this her whole career, but she had an idea. 
Her office was working with the IPTF to establish a new multidisciplinary UN project called Effectively Addressing Violence Against Women. Kathy would be the perfect person to run it. Kathy eagerly accepted. This was exactly the kind of work she wanted to be doing. Plus, it would take her out of Sarajevo, far from the vindictive officials. Her first challenge in her new role came a few weeks later, in October 1999. A Bosniak woman came into the local hospital with serious injuries. She claimed to have been beaten and stabbed by her husband. Judging from the hospital records, it wasn't the first time either. Kathy treated the case just as she would have back in Nebraska. As she taught the local police officers how to investigate a domestic abuse case, they questioned why they should even bother. In Bosnia, they said, this was a matter between husband and wife. A domestic abuse case had never been prosecuted in the country before. But Kathy insisted they had to try. When her team had gathered enough evidence, she persuaded the police chief to send the case to a prosecutor. The case finally went to trial in the spring of 2000. To everyone's surprise, the husband was found guilty. Kathy had succeeded. She had proved the value of her project and paved the way for violence against women to be prosecuted in Bosnia. As word spread that the UN was helping facilitate this, more and more women brought their cases into IPTF stations. Though Kathy was doing her best to train local officers to handle cases on their own, she still handled the thorniest ones. Which was how, one day, a local officer brought her a bruised teenage girl who appeared to be a sex worker. The officer had found her wandering around by the river that morning. As Kathy and her translator slowly tried to get the girl to talk to them, it became clear that she wasn't from Bosnia. In fact, she was from Moldova. That was strange. As a country still devastated from war, Bosnia didn't really have any immigrants. But there was something else strange, too. The girl kept urgently repeating the word Florida and grabbed Kathy's hand as if begging for help. Kathy thought it was unlikely she meant the state of Florida. Then she remembered that there was a bar on the edge of town called The Florida. Kathy had always assumed it was closed. She figured the UN trucks parked out front were from people going to the popular restaurant next door. There was only one way to find out. Taking a local officer with her, Per IPTF protocol, Kathy went to check out the Florida. When they arrived, they found the bar empty, with cigarettes still smoldering and beers half-drunk. Someone had tipped the owner off. Kathy poked around. The place was dingy and dirty. In the middle, there was a stripper pole. When she found a metal box behind the bar, she opened it. To her surprise, inside was a stack of American cash. U.S. dollars were hard to get in Bosnia. Almost all foreign workers were paid in Deutschmarks from Germany. The only ones who weren't were American IPTF monitors, paid in U.S. dollars by DynCorp. And the only place they could get U.S. cash 
was on one of the American military bases. U.S. dollars here meant that American IPTF monitors and maybe American soldiers frequently patronized the bar. That wasn't entirely unexpected. If the Florida was a strip club or a brothel, it was part of an ancient tradition. Like clockwork, influxes of foreign military and law enforcement resulted in a boom in sex work. That it was illegal in Bosnia didn't really matter. When Kathy picked up the cash, her stomach dropped. Underneath all those dollars was a stack of passports, each belonging to a teenage girl from an Eastern European or former Soviet bloc country. Most were around 15 or 16 years old. When Kathy recognized one of the photographs as the girl back at the station, she knew for sure what she was looking at. These passports belonged to girls who had been trafficked into Bosnia. They were likely being forced against their will to be sex workers, with their passports being held as collateral, leaving them essentially enslaved. And the U.S. dollars meant that American U.N. monitors were exploiting and assaulting victims of sex trafficking, most of whom were kids. Suddenly, Kathy remembered the line she'd heard during her orientation in Texas, when one of the guys had mentioned getting 12 to 15-year-old girls in Bosnia. She hadn't misheard him. If what that man had said was any indication, these men who were supposed to be representing the United States in the UN were knowingly raping trafficking victims. Kathy felt sick. She knew right then that she wasn't going to stop until she had rescued the girls and brought the perpetrators to justice, even if that meant going after her own colleagues. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. In rural Bosnia in the spring of 2000, 39-year-old International Police Task Force monitor Kathy Bolkovac found herself face-to-face with evidence that her UN colleagues were sexually assaulting teenage trafficking victims. After discovering the girls' passports in a seedy bar, Kathy set out to find where the girls themselves were being kept. If their passports were here, they likely weren't far away. She and her Bosnian police colleague walked around the outside of the building. On the back of the building, Kathy noticed a locked door at the top of a set of stairs. When a knock got no answer, 
she kicked through the flimsy lock. Inside huddled seven terrified girls. She recognized their faces from the passports. The room they were in was disgusting, with used condoms hanging out of the trash can, skimpy clothes and plastic bags, and just two mattresses between the seven of them. Though she didn't know if they'd understand, Kathy told the girls she was with the IPTF and was there to help them. But they didn't move. She asked them if there were any other girls and where they were being kept. Still, they stared at her, scared. Finally, one of them spoke up. In heavily accented English, she explained that they were afraid to tell her anything because they didn't want to end up dead in the river. That had already happened to at least one other girl. Kathy's team brought the girls back to the station to interview them and get them cleaned up. The girls told Kathy's team about how they had been lied to in their home countries, tricked with promises of good jobs. They talked about the brutal torture and abuse they had faced as their traffickers had tried to break their will. They recounted having their passports taken away and being locked away and beaten up if they didn't obey. They had been told they had to be sex workers until they had done enough to pay off the $3,000 debt that the bar owner had incurred in buying them from their traffickers. Never mind that that would take years. The girls also explained how the bar owner had a payoff deal going with one of the local police detectives. More than that, members of the IPTF Local police and military were all regular clients. Not that the girls would identify them. Kathy's team got to work. Since they didn't have enough to go after the clients, they started to build cases against both the bar owner and the corrupt detective. Meanwhile, the girls were sent to the UN's headquarters in Sarajevo, where the International Office of Migration organized their return to their home countries. Kathy didn't want to stop there, though. The Florida couldn't be the only bar operating as a brothel using trafficking victims. She started to drive around the country, keeping her eyes out for things that looked suspicious. She quickly noticed that seedy bars with incongruous American names seemed to cluster around military bases and UN Stabilization Force installations. Locals said they'd opened around the same time the internationals arrived. It seemed that Bosnia was now home to a roaring human trafficking trade. Kathy and her team had their work cut out for them, if they were going to try to rescue as many of these women as possible. But she had another problem. It was the spring of 2000, and her one-year mission was coming to an end. Not wanting to lose her, Madeleine Reese, the head of the UN Office of the High Commissioner on Human Rights, offered Kathy a new role. Madeleine wanted Kathy to be the Human Rights Office's gender officer, based in the UN Sarajevo headquarters. Kathy would be able to expand her program tackling violence against women across the UN's entire Bosnia mission she'd be able to raise awareness about sex trafficking and would have more power to combat it. Kathy loved her work and wanted to do more. 
But she didn't love the idea of having to be back at the heart of the DynCorp operation that had demoted her before. As an American, her contract would still be with DynCorp, even if she were working directly in the UN. She also missed her kids. On the other hand, she'd started dating a Dutch police officer who had recently finished his time in the IPTF. Going back to the U.S. would take her further from him. Besides, if she got more experience higher up in the U.N. mission, she'd be perfectly placed to find other work in the field once she'd finished her time as a DynCorp employee. Regulations stated that she was only allowed to work for them for another year, maximum, anyway. So, Kathy took the job. At first, the biggest shock was the move back to Sarajevo and the return to all the bureaucracy and politics of the UN and the IPTF. But as she settled into her new role, she quickly discovered that the challenge facing her was even bigger than she had anticipated. She had thought that rescuing these trafficked girls and getting them back to their home countries was at least helping them, even if it wasn't solving the underlying problem. Now that she was at the heart of the Human Rights Office, she discovered that repatriation wasn't even a Band-Aid. Many of the traffickers got tipped off when the girls were sent home. The traffickers often met them at the airport or border and brought them right back in. Even those who weren't trafficked again were given no counseling or mental health resources and struggled to survive after their ordeal. But the even bigger problem seemed to be that the UN officials at headquarters didn't take sex trafficking seriously. One incident crystallized the situation for her. For a case, Kathy needed resources to be arranged by the deputy commissioner of the IPTF, an American DynCorp employee named J. Michael Steers. But Steers was dismissive, not understanding why the IPTF should help a sex worker. His attitude wasn't uncommon. Kathy found that most officials and monitors considered the trafficked girls and women to be voluntary sex workers. And they apparently didn't think sex workers were deserving of rights or the UN's help. With each setback, Kathy's frustration grew. It felt like the problem just kept getting bigger and no one was taking them seriously. A month or so into her new job, a report came in from a regional IPTF station that a diplomatic vehicle had been identified at one of the traffickers' bars. The girls involved in the incident had not only provided a license plate number, but they had also given a description of the man who'd driven it and a list of the sexual services he'd paid their captor for. This was exactly what Kathy needed. The UN might want to look the other way on trafficking, but it couldn't ignore hard evidence of this behavior from its own employees. Up to this point, she hadn't had concrete proof that UN officials and contractors were involved in trafficking and abuse but a license plate and personal details were unavoidable. The UN would have to take action. Even though internationals were immune from Bosnian law, this person could still suffer serious consequences. If the head of the UN mission wanted, 
They could even have their immunity stripped and be forced to stand trial in Bosnia. Because the diplomatic plate meant that the man was a UN employee rather than a contractor, Kathy passed the case file over to the permanent UN hierarchy. It would have to go all the way to the head of the UN mission, the special representative to the Secretary General, Jacques Paul Klein. She heard nothing back for a month. Then, the file was returned to her desk with a note from Klein declaring that the issue had been handled a month ago. Except, as far as Kathy was aware, nothing had been handled at all. Her office should at least have heard something, since it was their case. When she asked her boss, the head of the human rights office in Sarajevo, the woman told her that they often ran into this with cases that implicated UN officials. It was infuriating that the very people who had come to the country to help people were perpetrating crimes, but their office couldn't do much. All she could suggest was that Kathy make copies of the file's documents and hold on to them in case there was an opportunity to do something about it in the future. Any hope Kathy had that this dismissal of a case was a one-off vanished shortly thereafter. She started to get reports from regional human rights offices of more and more cases that had been sent up the line before her time, only to never hear anything further. In one case, a local police officer had gone undercover to gain information on the trafficking situation in the region. The officer had managed to get proof of UN contractors' involvement in the local sex trafficking operation. The report had detailed evidence that IPTF officers were paying to sexually abuse trafficked women and girls at a number of bars. But it also had proof that an American involved with the UN was working directly with the trafficking operation, including by buying women and girls. The report had apparently been sent to the IPTF's leadership, including to the deputy commissioner, J. Michael Steers, with whom she'd previously butted heads. The Human Rights Office had heard nothing in the years since. Kathy was furious to learn this. She knew that DynCorp's lucrative contract with the U.S. government was all but contingent upon the mission going smoothly, so she couldn't help but suspect that Steers, as a senior DynCorp employee, was responsible for burying the case. He and DynCorp wouldn't dare risk a scandal with an American contractor. Unfortunately, there wasn't much she could do but send the report back up the line. Maybe someone new would pay attention this time. She also gave it to a friend elsewhere in the UN, who could pass it directly to the head of the IPTF. And, as she had last time, she made a copy of the case files for herself. At the very least, she could keep a record of these incidents for the future. A couple months later, in early October 2000, a new and promising case came Kathy's way. This time, a group of 16 trafficked girls and young women who had been rescued wanted to testify. But they didn't just want to testify against their captors. They also wanted to give evidence against both the local police and IPTF monitors who had abused and assaulted them. And they had lots of identifying details, including names and, 
In some cases, video footage. Here was the case Kathy had been waiting for. Surely this kind of evidence, coming straight from victims, would force the UN to finally take action against IPTF monitors. She compiled a confidential report for just three senior UN officials. No one else could know, in case they tipped off the men who were implicated. The next day, Kathy was one of more than 100 DynCorp IPTF employees CC'd on an email from a senior IPTF commander who had been handpicked by Steers. In the email, the commander warned the Americans about the investigation. Kathy couldn't believe what she was reading. The official had just given suspects a heads up that they were being investigated. He had also somehow gotten a hold of and shared confidential information. Almost like clockwork, a few days later, a senior IPTF monitor called the investigation off, saying it had already been handled. When Kathy found out, she snapped. She could no longer grit her teeth through the hypocrisy or the minimizing of women's lives and rights. The UN's job was to help people. Instead, senior officials were covering up harms that the UN was perpetrating. She had to stop them, even if it meant making powerful enemies. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. On the evening of October 9th, 2000, 39-year-old Kathy Bolkovac sat down at her computer in Sarajevo and sent off a blistering email to 50 senior officials on the UN's Bosnia mission. The title was, Do not read this if you have a weak stomach or guilty conscience. In it, she laid out how sex trafficking worked and the difference between sex workers and trafficking victims. She told graphic stories of violent abuse, torture, and rape that her office had recorded from victims. She reminded her colleagues that they had come to Bosnia in order to help people in the war-torn country. 
What were they doing if they did not help these girls and women? Most of the replies thanked Kathy for speaking out. Many of her colleagues had worked on the issue themselves. She was giving voice to their frustration. But Steers, the IPTF deputy commissioner, went on the war path. He spent the next few weeks lobbying the UN leadership to let him send Kathy home. He even claimed to have spoken to the U.S. State Department. He insisted that her email indicated she was burnt out and her judgment compromised. Madeline Reese, who had hired Kathy into the Human Rights Office, intervened. As a respected UN official, she refused to let Kathy go. So Steers took the only recourse he could. Kathy was still an IPTF monitor. While his boss was out of the country, Steers demoted Kathy out of HQ and down to the Sarajevo IPTF station. He also banned her from working in the Human Rights Division. Kathy was stunned. Steers insisted the move was for her own good, to let her recover from the stress of her role. He would not, however, send her for a psychological evaluation. Nor would he get her the counseling that someone burned out might need. But getting Kathy out of the Human Rights Office didn't solve Steers and the other senior officials' problems. For one thing, her new role required her to create the daily briefing report of every police action and investigation happening across the UN's Bosnia mission. She now had access to even more evidence of trafficking cases than she had had in her previous job. But something else happened, too. Almost as soon as Kathy was demoted, in November 2000, 25 IPTF monitors in the city of Priyadur raided several bars. They broke protocol and did so without the local police. In the raids, they rescued 34 trafficked girls and women, some who were as young as 14. However, when the girls were interviewed at the station, they accused 11 of the IPTF monitors who had just raided the bars of having also been clients. The bar's owner then publicly accused the IPTF station's deputy commander of extorting him and 56 other bar owners for protection money. He claimed that the deputy commander had raided his bars when he refused to continue paying the bribes. With the press involved, the UN couldn't ignore the incident. The IPTF leadership quickly sent six of the monitors involved back to their home countries. The victims were then repatriated nearly as rapidly as their abusers before the Human Rights Office could interview them any further. Hoping to avoid any further bad press, Jacques-Paul Klein, the head of the UN's mission, insisted that the bar owner was lying. Klein claimed that the IPTF men were only sent home because they had breached protocol by doing the raid without the local police. There was no real scandal here. Kathy's hope of an investigation quickly disappeared. Over the next few months, Kathy continued to work under the radar on trafficking cases. Between her email and the high-profile Priyador incident, more and more frustrated UN employees were bringing their cases to her. As she had all along, Kathy made copies of the case files and reports 
that came her way. Even if the UN wasn't going to do anything about them, at least she wouldn't let the facts disappear. She had to hope that someday this evidence would matter. That March, with the end of her two-year mission just a few months away, Kathy got an email from the DynCorp site manager. Sent to all American DynCorp employees in Bosnia, it asked them to send along any successes from their work on the mission. He was collecting them, presumably to send to the State Department. Kathy couldn't resist the opportunity. She replied with an email detailing her experience working to improve women's rights in Bosnia and calling out her frustrations in trying to stop and prosecute sex trafficking. She told him how members of the UN mission had been implicated in both trafficking and abuse of these women and girls, and how her attempts to call it out had resulted in her demotion. For good measure, she copied a number of people in the Human Rights Office on the email. Maybe her speaking out would encourage them to do the same. And then she promptly forgot about it. She had shouted into the void enough times to know better than to expect a response. A week and a half later, though, Kathy was called into yet another DynCorp IPTF superior's office. The official informed her that they had discovered she'd falsified some of her time cards. As a violation of her contract, it was grounds for immediate dismissal. Kathy had no idea what they were talking about. She had never falsified time cards. If anything, she had been more diligent about staying on top of them than most of her DynCorp colleagues. But the official was adamant. Kathy was fired. Kathy immediately called Madeline. Madeline was livid, insisting that Kathy had a right to due process if she was being dismissed with cause. DynCorp's corporate charter said it was governed by English law which mandated an investigation and a right to appeal in cases like this. The two women went straight to some UN lawyers they knew. The attorneys advised that Kathy needed to insist upon proper procedure being followed in her dismissal. That way, she would have a case for unfair termination when DynCorp didn't follow the rules. This meant that Kathy had to continue showing up for work until DynCorp had the UN officially fire her. So, she spent the next day with a tape recorder rolling in her pocket, asking every superior for her right to due process. By the time she received termination paperwork from the UN personnel department, she had evidence from a number of officials all but proving that her superiors had it out for her. With her job gone, Kathy had to leave Bosnia. Madeline and her other colleagues promised to continue fighting, but Kathy was going to have to work outside the UN if she wanted to make a difference. Fortunately, she had all the case files she had been copying for the last year or so. And there were hundreds of them, all packed into her duffel bag. As long as she could get them out of Bosnia without the UN finding out, she could figure out what to do with them. Kathy's plan was to drive across the border into Serbia, the duffel bag in the trunk. Her Dutch boyfriend, Jan, was flying in from the Netherlands. He would meet her in Zagreb, and they'd drive back to Holland together. 
But as soon as she went back to her house to collect the last of her belongings, an IPTF guy arrived at her door. Kathy tried not to panic. She knew from her investigations that some IPTF monitors were involved with organized crime. But when she opened the door, it turned out to be a good friend of hers. Before Kathy could greet him, though, he shushed her and indicated that the place wasn't safe. It wasn't until they got in his car that he told her that he and a couple friends had heard chatter about IPTF monitors coming after her. They suspected her house and phone were bugged and that she might even be being watched. It was even possible that someone would tamper with her car. He had a plan, though. She could stay with him that evening. They would keep an eye on her car, and then in the morning, he would escort her partway to Zagreb to ensure her safety. By the time Kathy reached Zagreb the next day and reunited with Jan, all she could do was hug him and cry. But her battle wasn't over yet. She got in touch with a British lawyer that Madeline had recommended and showed her the hundreds of case files she'd brought out of Bosnia. Between those and the documentation of her firing, the lawyer told Kathy that she had a strong case if she wanted to sue DynCorp for unfair dismissal as a whistleblower. All Kathy cared was that the truth came out about the sex trafficking situation and the UN officials' cover-up. She wasn't looking for money. She wanted the world to know the truth so that the UN and the U.S. presence abroad could be reformed. She wanted women and girls to be protected and for their rights to matter. But as she waited for her court date, scheduled for April 2002, she discovered that she needed something else, too. Because she had been fired by DynCorp, Kathy was finding it difficult to get work in the international human rights sector. Even though she had impressive experience and glowing recommendations from respected people in the field, organizations were afraid to touch her. Even her lawsuit was seen as a liability. International entities weren't looking for someone who would cause them trouble. Kathy needed her case to prove that DynCorp had been in the wrong. Otherwise, she might never again get to do the work she loved. In the end, the tribunal was a blowout for Kathy. The DynCorp men who had undermined her and then conspired to fire her were quickly shown to have had it out for her based on her whistleblowing emails. At least one of them had been subsequently caught in one of the brothels, abusing trafficked women. The tribunal determined that DynCorp had not just violated protocol in Kathy's firing, but that the grounds for her dismissal had no basis. DynCorp was ordered to pay Kathy about $175,000 in damages. Though that would have been a small amount in the U.S., it was a notably large sum for the U.K., it did not, however, make a dent in the corporation's resources. The case did bring attention to the issue, though. The press put the screws to the UN, which announced new initiatives intended to help rescue trafficked women and girls and repatriate them. Experts who were interviewed pointed out that this was not solving the root of the trafficking problem. In a notable interview on the BBC, Klein, the head of the Bosnia mission, 
angrily insisted that all allegations of misconduct by UN officers had been thoroughly investigated and that nothing had ever been covered up. As for DynCorp, in May 2003, months after the verdict came out, the corporation was awarded a new $22 million contract from the U.S. government. This one was to build an IPTF-style police force in Iraq. In the years since, DynCorp and other corporations, like Halliburton and Blackwater, have continued to receive lucrative government contracts to act on behalf of the U.S. in war-torn countries around the world. Scandals about contractor behavior on the ground regularly make the news, and millions of dollars often go unaccounted for. As for Kathy, despite her vindication in court, she was still unable to find permanent work in the international human rights sector. She married her Dutch boyfriend and started splitting her time between the U.S. and the Netherlands, often working as a consultant and speaker on the issues of human trafficking and anti-corruption. When she wrote a book about her experiences, it was quickly turned into a feature film called The Whistleblower, starring Rachel Weisz. When the movie was released in 2010, the UN once again found itself in the hot seat, though DynCorp did not. To this day, Kathy continues to advocate for human rights. That was her job when she started at the UN. And to her, it was the most basic thing in the world. Though she didn't realize how much of an uphill battle that fight would be, she has refused to give up. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of Whistleblowers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. For more information on Kathy Bolkovac, amongst the many sources we used, we found her book with Carrie Lynn, The Whistleblower, extremely helpful to our research. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original for ParCast, produced in partnership with Stable. Executive produced by Drew Cole, Max Cutler, Becky Jacobs, and David McGuire. Developed for podcast by Julian Boireau. Written by Kate Thorman. Produced by Alice Homewood and David McGuire. Mixed, mastered, and sound designed by Rowan Bishop for Stable. And hosted by me, Pat Rodriguez. Rodriguez.